Hi there. Thank you for listening to Spotless, breaking the boundaries of television. The world of TV and advertising is evolving quickly. The largest content creators, distributors, and brands are all vying for new ways to engage the next generation of viewers. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. Consumer behaviors of the next two years will decide the winners and losers of the next two decades. Now here's our host, Michael Shields, GM of Advanced Advertising at Triple Lift. Ty Randolph is an award-winning marketing, business development, and operations leader who has spent her career at the intersection of content, consumers, and commerce. Randolph has a proven track record of developing brands, audience, and revenue for some of the biggest names in advertising technology and entertainment, including WPP, Publicis, Sony, Facebook, and Kevin Hart. In 2018, Randolph was named to Ad Age's 40 Under 40 list and Synopsis It list. In 2019, Randolph was named one of multi-channel news's Wonder Women into streaming Women to Watch. As the EVP and GM for Laugh Out Loud Network, Randolph manages day-to-day business strategy, operations, and P&L management for Kevin Hart's comedy brand and multi-platform network. Prior to joining Laugh Out Loud, Randolph was a member of Facebook's global marketing solutions team. In this role, she managed strategic partnerships and digital transformation initiatives with some of the most innovative marketing and technology agencies in the U.S. Randolph was named one of Black Enterprises' leading women in advertising and marketing in 2016 for her work transforming Sony Music's direct-to-consumer digital group from an internal cost center to an independent digital marketing and e-commerce service provider. Amazing bio. We are so happy to have (laughs) you here, Ty. Welcome to Spotless. Thank you for having me. I want to. I want you to just follow me around and do my intro. It's like the best <laughs> introduction ever. <laughs> well, in your in your own words, Ty, get started by telling us the background on coming to Laugh Out Loud Network. Like why you chose to go there. What excited you about the opportunity? Yeah, you know, um, so I, I, so when I was in college, I actually thought I was going to be a filmmaker one day. Um, and then by the time I was done, I was like, I don't want to go back to school right now. And um, I'd interned at PR agencies and I so started out in um, communications and advertising agencies pretty early on in my career. Um, my first my first job post-college, um, coincidentally, was working for a UK based uh, marketing communications firm called Rapier Group. And um, they focus on face-to-face communications for aerospace, um, defense, and uh, telecom companies. So all B2B kind of heavy stuff. And I, um, the, the biggest project that I did while I was there um, was project managing um, the, the launch of a SLAMRAM missile system for Raytheon. And I realized at like 23, I'm like, oh my God, I'm literally marketing weapons of mass destruction. So I, which was like unnerving. So I, I left that, went to go work for a film festival um, 
which was like my entree into digital. So I, I went to Atlanta, um, worked for the Atlanta Film Festival, doing all their sponsorships and development, and um, and and started figuring out how the film could have the festival could have evergreen digital monetization. Um, you know, 360 outside of the fest, and that was my entree into digital. Ran. Um, social media and emerging media teams and departments for, as you said, WPP and publicist agencies. Um, and then eventually, again, I kept trying to get closer to entertainment. I felt like there was some sort of call there. And there was this natural segue then to, to ultimately when I was at VML YNR, leave there to go to Sony um, that had a pretty interesting sort of internal agency-esque um, uh, sort of a structure within Sony Music, um, handling all website design and development, e-commerce, um, digital marketing for all of the labels globally. So the sort of center, digital center of excellence, if you will. And I joined as VP of consumer marketing strategy and would be promoted up to SVP um, and, and CMO before I left. But um, ultimately we took that business unit, carved it out, like grew it, carved it out, did a management buyout, sold it to a private equity group, um, I went to Facebook after that. And I was at this cross section before I went to Facebook and thinking kind of what was the next move. So it was funny, you know, I started, I got the call from Lionsgate slash Kevin shortly after getting to Facebook and thought, oh, I just got here um, and was eager to dig into the, the tech side of the business. But, um, and we, we started out talking about a different platform in their, their OTT um, portfolio at the time for Lionsgate. Uh, but when I got the call about Kevin Hart, that one was a you know sort of like almost too good to to refuse uh he his career and his rise had been meteoric but also it was an interesting strategy because at the time and this is prior to lionsgate sort of like full integration of stars um their ott strategy had really been about these sort of like skinny vibe services right um you know comic-con hq tribeca shortlist and for each one they would partner with um you know, a brand that had specific reach and resonance with an audience that so they would curate and create the IP. And then this brand, whether it's Comic-Con or Tribeca Enterprise, um, would really sort of activate the, uh, bring and activate the audience. So I always thought it was a really interesting position that the brand in this case is Kevin Hart and that he himself had, had kind of, you know, evolved into um, a, brand, a, a standalone brand, not just an entertainer. Um, and then, you know, in talking with him and Jeff Clanagan, it, it became clear that there was this huge opportunity here. You have the biggest comedian in the world who's endeavoring to really architect the future of comedy. And at the heart of that, though, were all of these really unique distribution challenges and opportunities, these really unique uh, marketing challenges and opportunities, and technology challenges and opportunities. So it, it felt like a really um, sort of meaty role. And here I am three years later, still digging in. And now I imagine you're using the breadth of experience that you have to really build out of Kevin Hart and LOL, a diversified media company. Can you talk about that strategy and why it's important to your business to be on all these different screens? It's, it's a, so your um, great question and your description is spot on a diversified media company. Um, and so it's interesting when you sit amongst other modern media companies, right, that are digitally native. And it's really been, um, you know, I'd love to say that we're hugely innovative, and I think that we are. Uh, but it's also been the rules of the road, right? If you're going to launch a brand um, that's reaching consumers today, um, 
it's going to be very hard to do without broad distribution um, and and without sort of a, a, a diversified path and, and, and sort of ways in. And, you know, that's true for us here because we're focused on comedy. But, you know, when you look at, um, you know, modern media companies like Tastemade or, um, you know, Cheddar or, you know, when you think about reaching audiences today. And again, at the end of the day, we're not reinventing the wheel, right? We're creating content, want to get in the hands of consumers. Um, They're pretty much two models, right? Either someone's going to, either the consumer's going to pay for the content or an advertiser is going to pay for the consumer's attention while they're watching the content. So it's not rocket science, but um, the landscape has evolved so much. And there's been such a fragmentation with attention and distribution with that has come great opportunity. So there are a number of different ways to reach consumers, um, a number of different ways to get your message out and to, to develop and distribute IP, but there's also a ton more competition. We knew though, when talking to Kevin and he said, hey, I wanna build the future of comedy. So what does that look like? Well, it's gotta be mobile first because that's where folks are spending the majority of their attention. It's multi-platform though, because especially when we talk about audiences of color, we're over-indexing across, you know, every device, right? It's not one or the other, it's yes and, that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it, so, you know, it's multi-platform. We were talking to millennials and younger because they were defining, right, consumption habits across and really sort of spreading the water. Um, and it was multicultural, right? The world's quickly becoming more brown than not, like we're quickly becoming more diverse than not. And so we wanted to program, um, we want our programming to look like the world in which we exist, right? And to also fill some uh, some white spaces in the marketplace where we thought that black and brown audiences were being underserved. So putting all that together, letting the consumer be our guide, that really evolved our strategy. So yeah, we had this app, but it was, there's a bigger proposition here. Our audiences are cons- cons- you know, consuming across more devices with more formats. It led us to launch you know an audio portion of the business and launch lol radio you know we said hey comedy is so um it should be experienced right it's best shared it led us to launch an experiential division um you know when we thought about how you know speed to market and the ability when we're servicing so many different distribution partners how we had to up our production capability then it launched us to you know invest heavily in our own sound stages so that we could control the production pipeline um and all of this really was leveraging the consumer as our guiding light i'd like to get your comments on this uh, evolving landscape particularly so our audiences represent a diverse set of stakeholders across the entire entertainment value chain. So I want to recap some of the deals that you've done across the value chain recently. Mm-hmm. Kevin Hart's Die Hart was greenlit for a second season at Quibi. Congratulations. Um, LOL Network has struck a multi-platform deal with Sirius XM. Um, and recently a multi-year deal with NBCU's new Peacock streaming service uh, for LOL Studios. Um, I'd like to get your comments on that evolving landscape, how you engage, like how it's changed what the way a digital studio engages linear networks mm. and streaming services and where you see all of this kind of going. Great question. Um, you know, 
first of all, the taxonomy alone, I think what, yeah. no matter where you are on the value chain is yeah. wildly confusing and ever shifting. Um, and so we just, we recently went through or began a rebrand, um, you know, just sort of refreshing look and feel, doubling down on what our value proposition was. And one of the hardest parts is how do you describe yourself, right? Like, what are you? Because the truth of the matter is like, we play along that entire value chain and a lot of companies are, right? Like you're finding yourselves in some places, um, you know, again, we, the examples that you show, we sold a show to Quibi. We are studio there um, and, and production company. We're not the distributor though, right? It lives on their platform. We sold the show to them. Um, you know, we take a, a show like Cold as Balls though, where we are studio distributor, um, you know, we're licensing it out. So that we're, we're every place, um, you know, along that ecosystem. And so, we try to play to our strengths situationally. So it requires a bit less rigidity than I think professionals in the media landscape were afforded before. And I would say, I would say that the same is true um, of, of large media and entertainment companies too, right? Our partners like NBC, you Peacock are finding themselves in the same way. They've got this very diversified business and <clears throat> you're trying to double down in every piece of it, you know, you, with Peacock, the launch of Peacock is informed by the fact that they've got this, you know, sort of like huge content arsenal. They've also got some just amazing from a distribution perspective footprint with Comcast and Xfinity that, you know, very few, um, you know, folks getting into the, you know, who are arming up for the streaming wars can say that they have that kind of head start in the game. And then as you look to Peacock's programming and, and why I'm so excited about that affiliation is they've got this legacy of not just amazing, you know, IP creation, but for us, like when we look at, you know, the, the um, powerhouses that we're sitting amongst from a comedy perspective by coming onto Peacock, right? Like with SNL and like just amazing IP, um, you know, I think they're, they're very interestingly positioned. Um, and then you look at a company like Pluto, where we're also distributed and, um, you know, they have been over indexing for audiences of color and comedy has really been working there. And we sit amongst folks like Comedy Central and in the Wild and Out channel. Um, and so, you know, you it, it's even when you think about competition, I was um, doing uh, I, I did like a segment on LinkedIn News a couple of weeks ago and um uh, Reed Hastings had gone up and was was you know promoting his new book and talking about you know their evolving landscape and he was asked who they thought his biggest competition was and he said YouTube which is you know he didn't mention any of the streamers it's like right. whoever's got the most attention for the audience right now um, is is who he's watching out for and so I think that. Um, you know, everyone's head is sort of on a swivel when you're trying to, to, to maintain a strategic POV here because things are shifting so quickly. Everyone likes to talk about potential winners and losers in these streaming wars that you, you alluded to. How do you think that the competition between these services evolves over the next few years? Are we going to have a lot of different services that we subscribe to? Are they going to become niche that so one, if I really knew the answer to that, I'd probably be getting paid a lot more <laughs> and building whatever the future of the answer was. No, but but seriously speaking, though, I do think that we're building the future because I think for us, and then I'll, I'll answer your question. Our approach at Laugh Out Loud has been 
we know there's going to be massive change, right? I always say, and this isn't to be self-deprecating about our mission and our value, but that some of these things that we're doing aren't going to work, right? We've got a diversified sort of revenue portfolio that we've, we're, you know, playing, like you said, throughout that value chain. And we will, you know, invariably be stronger in some places than others. And those are the places that will double down. We'll also see more demand in some places than others. You know, we're, it's interesting that we're, you know, greenlighting more audio shows than ever right now, because there is a demand for that. And we can actually get out and to produce it. We've never been so grateful to have our own production facilities because safely and cautiously, we were able to gear back up to produ for production amidst the quarantine animation, right? There's a, there's sort of a, a big need for that. So, so we're looking at those um, call outs. But, you know, I think when when I think about winners and losers, um, you know, I because I'm not the analyst who's sort of like driving the investment, I always look at it from a consumer perspective first. Right. So I take off my LOL hat and I think about how am I consuming media? It's I am overwhelmed by choice right now. You know, there's more content than I can even discover. And so I think that whomever can help to add, like, you know, it, at some point it was, we were so restricted by our packages and our, you know, our, our, our cable providers. And it's like, cut the cord. Now that you've cut the cord, like your assets are all over the place. So then it's like, now you need someone to bundle those back up for right. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I think whoever is able to provide um, breath, and depth and ease of discovery are going to be the winners, right? So to me, what that means is that, you know, it will be tough for a lot of sort of niche SBOD services, you know, who don't have that same scale, um, you know, to, to remain independent as content becomes more expensive and, and you know, the attention becomes more fragmented. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, folks who can offer that level of variety, that level of freedom, because, I mean, that's what we heard from consumers loud and clear. We said we didn't want to be sort of like, you know, tied to these packages. We wanted to be able to curate our own consumption. But at the same time, it needs to be now it needs to be able to be easily navigated, easily discoverable. So, um, you know, and, and, and this, the same is like, you know, how many of these are going to be able to get that Netflix level scale um, that that sustains you? So. What is this in your mind? You put your marketing cap back on. Um, uh, what does this mean for brands and marketers who mm. are obviously trying to reach these now somewhat fragmented audiences? Well, I mean, it means we buy differently, right? And and they've already had to start to. I mean, you could that you know before you cover broadcast and you've checked the box on your mass reach vehicle or you know you're going to get 80 percent of your audience that's not the case anymore right the other thing it does is you know if you notice a lot of the choice as much as we talk about you know aggregation and consolidation a lot of um you know, when, when you think about though, when you take a step back and you think about who's building brands, which of these streaming services is building a brand that means something to a consumer um, where it's like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna remain loyal just to the service. A lot of the onboarding though that happens is happening at the IP level, right? They're becoming very, you know, like, a, and, and I'm again, let me go back to a focus group of one when it's like, oh, I have to watch Handmaid's Tale. So I can't not have, you know, Hulu. Right. Like you, you, you that, that, that uh, behavior really exists. And so then I think brands have to 
um, are having the challenge of sort of like, you know, how do we reach across platforms where, because we know our audience is everywhere, right? That's information that they have and how do you action that? And then the second part though, I think is also, and, and this is really what our proposition is with brands, where you know your audience has deep affinity around IP, partnering in that, you know, around that IP and then following that IP where it goes when it's possible. So, you know, a good example of that for Laugh Out Loud is our relationship with um, Old Spice and Procter & Gamble around our show Coldest Balls, you know. Um, we knew that the, what were the insights, right? Like they, um, you know, African-American and more broadly multicultural men are a very important segment for them, right? And also everyone like, um, you know, a, a women who influence the purchasing decisions and behaviors of that group. Um, we also know that in terms of sort of like affinities um, in interest areas, sports and comedy ring high, right? So it looks like a good marriage. And we know they over index for YouTube consumption, which is where the show started. But we also know that they that the same audience is consuming content on Snapchat and on Facebook and on streaming services. So now as we've co-invested in the IP together over time, we tailor that IP to the channel where it's being distributed. So it exists as a 10 minute episodic on YouTube, a you know two to three minute episodic on Snapchat with additional context. It's um, you know more of a linear experience on Pluto and the brand is integrated and follows that um, you know IP everywhere it goes and thus is developing a multi-platform relationship and sustaining a multi-platform relationship with their audience via that IP and our relationship. So um, before, <laughs> Uh, you know, media investment wasn't nearly that sort of like complex, right? But also not that level of depth. You know, this goes beyond, you know, 15 and 30 second spots to real relationship and integration. Um, do you think that groups like LOL are the ones that are best positioned to be like the creative agency of the future, right? Like you, I love how you just <laughs> talked about the ideation process, right? Um, with companies like Procter & Gamble, um, this is almost another capability, right, that LOL has. Absolutely. You know, one, having come from creative agencies, right, like some of the, the best of them, YNR, VML, just who've done fantastic work, um, and now sitting on um, the media company side, we definitely want to be considered co-creators and co-marketers with our brand partners, right? I would not say that we're trying to up in agencies because, and, and I say that because they play an important part. For instance, for sure. I'm just going to go back to, to Old Spice, for example, we're right at the table with Wyatt and Kennedy, who's thinking across every platform and across every iteration and at the brand DNA at every specific product level, right? There is, I would not, um, have so much hubris to say that there is not from a comms planning perspective, from a, a brand strategy, particularly in landscapes like CPG, um, you know, th there are not very specific skill sets that, you know, we not only have not invested in, but don't have on our horizon, right? We're not mapping to be a creative agency. That said, when it comes to content creation and delivering resonant messaging we are a fantastic partner for that. And the reason why is I always say we don't have sales teams writing our ideas and messaging. I want to create content that's truly entertaining 
And I want the brand to be 100% integrated to and integrated in and additive to that content. And so the proposition here is come collab with us. You have a brand message that you want to get across. We're targeting the same audience and we have an entertainment experience that we're looking to deliver. And those two things, not only can they live together, right? They can really amplify and enhance each other when done well, but it does require partners both on the, the media property side and on the brand side to have the right posture. Um, you know, I, I often say based on the level of the talent that we work with um, and the creative freedom that we want to enable comedic creators, unless a brand is really looking to collaborate, right? We're, we're not the place to just drop a, a spot in because the, I want to always make sure I deliver results too. So it's like, let's make sure that the messaging really, really, really works. And, and don't get me wrong advertising across our platform, right? Like there's always, I believe everyone was saying, oh, the 15 is dead, the 30 is dead, the 16 is dead. I don't believe that, right? Like I still watch advertisements and they still incite me <laughs> to act, mm -hmm. particularly when they're contextual to what I'm watching. Right. Um, and so, so, so 100%, but I think for those deeper relationships, again, it's, it's not either or, it's that end. Um, and I love it when brands come to the table and say, hey, we know that this is the straight on brand message that we need to deliver. We've got a great spot and I want to run it before this amazing content. But now I want to think about how to co-storytell with you. I think um, in, for, in, in terms of an agency perspective, that's where, where we really play a great sort of like, you know, creative consultant role. So when brands come to you with their messaging, ultimately you can, you can help embed that in programming. Are you going back to brands and saying this is who you could be for our audience? 100%. We've done, you know, we've got, a, you know, a, a partnerships like with Lyft where, you know, that's not content that was planned. That's, oh, this is the message you have. Here is, here is a vehicle, pun intended, that delivers that, that's custom for you, that, by the way, we think is just like great entertainment, period. And it just so happens that this entire narrative revolves around this rideshare experience and, um, you know, sort of all the, the tides rise. There are also opportunities like Cold as Balls where that IP existed and we said, oh, wow, this is the perfect place to, to embed. Um, and so I think that it can happen either way, but both of them have to be super thoughtful in their trade-offs. I mean, I'm talking to a partner right now who um, was really interested in having their name. It was very important for them to have their name in a piece of content, like in, in the title. And it was as a, as a co-creator, right? Um, and as a collaborator on this, I said, hey, we could do that, you know, and that's going to get you a lot of first eyeballs. But it's also going to inhibit our distribution because there's certain platforms that we distribute on that aren't going to take it because they're not going to take branded content. So there are trade offs. And, you know, I, it, it's interesting because I don't often I wouldn't say that brands have the easiest job when it comes to making those decisions, because I'm as bottom line driven as anyone. So, you know, you want guaranteed reach, you want to see, and the whole reason you're investing is to see purchase intent move. You're looking to see, um, you know, put products in shelves, cans off shelves, you know, vehicles on the road. You're looking to make a transaction. And particularly in this climate, this economic climate, you often are, you know, what where some brands had the luxury of doing that over several quarters now you're looking to sort of like be able to justify those investments month over month and quarter over quarter so those are tough decisions but i think that we all have to educate ourselves more about the landscape and again when in doubt 
Take off all the other hats and put on the consumer hat. Is this going to be entertaining to you? Is this going to incite you to action? Is this additive to the experience that you're watching? There's not an imaginary audience out there that's not you. <laughs> there's not someone who's more tuned to like, you know, weird messages or it's like, there's not like, if you don't think it was good uh, and not to say that you should only, you know, sort of gut check as focus groups of one, but I always think that's a great place to start, you know? In the instance of the engagement with Lyft, um, it's almost like creating a show with a brand. Yeah, it's a show. It's a, it's a full on show, Webby award winning show, yeah. And is that like, is that something that you see is really going to become part of the scalable dialogue that you have with the, the advertising community? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's important from a co- one, I mean, one insight is so even though we started off um, as a hybrid S5 AVOD service, our broader distribution network now, which reaches over 100 million consumers in aggregate, is almost, um, you know, it's, it's primarily AVOD. So we're primarily either, um, you know, creating content with brands or creating content that is, you know, somehow advertiser supported. So um, they're a critical component of our ecosystem. So that's why I sort of like kind of seeing eye to eye and, um, and figuring out mutually beneficial solutions are very critical, you know, to sort of um, our path forward. How are you thinking about, just shift gears just a little bit here, um, but still in the, the marketing realm, how are you thinking about marketing shows? You have such a deep and, and diverse marketing background. Um, you're now building this diversified media asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and marketing of shows, right, is something that's going through radical transformation now that the show is distributed in all these different places. What have you applied from your marketing background in terms of tactics and stuff for now marketing shows? You know, one of the, um, uh, so when, when I was at Sony, um, I, over a part of my purview was overseeing the CRM team um, that was responsible for both managing, growing and monetizing a 26 million um, member consumer database, global consumer database, right? And so, I mean, I did some super tech, you know, sort of super techie stuff, um, you know, with the team, like sort of, you know, RFPing our, our global uh, ESP service and CRM platform. And I remember we were on Neo Lane when they were acquired by Adobe. And so I spent like a year of my life talking, right message, right channel, right time, and figuring out how to dynamically do that, right? Um, And so, but again, it's right message, you know, right member, right time, right place. And it was all about sort of like, what is this, this person doing? How much can I know about this, this audience, this, this subscriber who I'm delivering something to a message to where, what is the right communication, right? So sort of like varying the communication, depending on who the person is day parting it, thinking about what channel it would be distributed across, whether like, are you consuming this on email? Are you consuming this on mobile? Am I retargeting you on a site? Um, and in this sort of like, you know, again, basic CRM principles. And now that is the entire, that guides all of like the marketing decisions now for what is really more of a creative exercise. Because if I'm thinking about how, whether it's DL uncut, right? It's like, 
right message, right time. The communication, when I'm rolling out a show, I have to think about, well, who's the target audience for this show? We say we're talking to multicultural millennials and younger, but we kind of expand down and above depending on the individual series. So let's define who the audience is for that and where are they consuming, right? That audience actually, because it ages up just a little bit, is um, sort of like very responsive to messaging on Facebook, right? Email, even though we never talk about it, is still one of the great workhorses of communication. If you can get in someone's inbox with a good message, like the click-through rate, like really reward you. Um, and so very specific. When we're trying to brand the show and we're thinking about, okay, like how do you invite folks in? Are we talking about out of home? We have a whole radio um, channel and big partnership. Audio has been a really great awareness driver, right? Especially for talk-driven vehicles. So um, we real so I find myself thinking about who is this audience? How much do I know about them? All the places that I can reach them with a nuanced message. And so, um, so it, it's a mix of art and science. And, uh, you know, we, we try to glean what we can also from sort of, you know, best in class advertisers. And sometimes that even means companion content that exists around shows. Netflix did a fantastic job of using storytelling as the primary way to get you into the stories that they want you to watch. Um, and I've definitely taken a few pages out of their hands for sure. <laughs> But I think understanding that consumer journey, doing that qualitative analysis to understand the consumer journey, and then bringing both your creative process and the analytics from that is super compelling. Very smart. Ty, I want to shift gears again a little bit and really maybe, maybe focus the back half of our conversation on diversity. For starters, what does diversity mean to you personally? Representation. Right. I, I think we get super deep and nuanced, but it's just so weird that we don't build organizations and products that look like the world around us. It's really, really bizarre. Right. Um, and if you find yourself in a room, if you find yourself on a show, if you find yourself creating a campaign and it's not reflective of the world, it's just bizarre. Right. And so I think that it's just a, a, a bit amount of common sense is that how have our organizations and our communications not scale to reflect the actual composition of the society in which we live. So as you're now building one of these organizations, right, what are the, the principles of, and even the measures of mm -hmm. diversity and equity and, and, and inclusion uh, that you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, so we were, I always say we're diverse by design, right? right like, right. and, and here's the thing, and this is like attracts like. So I always say people say things like, um, well, we got to fill the pipeline. How do we hire more black folks? How do we hire more women? How do we hire more people from the LGBTQ community? Hire one because if you, and, and empower them, because like, just start the process. Like it's going to be very hard for you to attract a diverse cross-section of people if you if the if the the company is inherently not diverse. So you just have to like make the first move because when any member is any sort of segment is underrepresented in an organization, it perpetuates that bias in ways that we don't even realize, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you know, I was working at a company that I won't name and we were in an interview process that was pretty democratized. They had gone to great lengths to democratize this process and to account for unconscious bias. So there was this numerical score, 
You had interviewers who, you know, it, was, it made sure that it wasn't always, there was sort of like a, um, a certain composition of who was in the interview category. It had to be people who were lateral to, above, et cetera. The feedback, you know, was anonymous. And then it was all, um, or sort of the, the feedback was all individual and then it would be sort of like weighed and scored so that it wasn't just going on like, oh, I like this person, I don't like this person. Right. And I remember being on, we had finished a video conference and we were talking not about our scores, but just people were giving reactions to this individual. It happened to be a black woman who had interviewed. And um, they were saying, oh my God, her background is fantastic, but I don't know if she's a good culture fit because her attitude, she seemed a little, you know, like kind of closed down. And I thought, I did not get that read whatsoever, yeah. right? Um, I thought she was confident. She talked like I talk, right? She sounded like my girlfriend sound. Like, what is that? But the idea of it is that with all of those other measures, I was the only person of color in the interview process, right? I was one of only a few women in that interview process. So even if you add up all of our scores objectively, I'm still, even though represented with the same weight, there's still going to be bias inherent there because the lens, not that I don't think anybody got up in the morning and said, I don't want to hire this black woman, right? It's just that what we bring to the table and how we interpret people who are not like us, right? So, so Going back to sort of what measures do we, you know, put in place, we actively look for blind spots and fill them. So when all of this, you know, when we, when is the company's going through, the country's going through what I call this racial reckoning, if you will, um, you know, a lot of folks are reaching out and I've said on panels and they said, you know, hey, you know, what did, how do you do this? I'm like, well, we're just going to keep doing what we do. We create comedy and color. We recognize the, a, a white spot, you know, sort of a, a white space in the market. We knew comedians of color, comedic creators of color are being sort of like underrepresented, underamplified, right? Um, you know, Kevin himself has spoken about how the plight was very different for him, you know, as an African-American comedian. And so knowing that, like, that was a part of the reason why we were founded was to super serve this audience. And so in doing so, the behind the scenes and in front of the camera, we've doubled down on diversity. That said, there's always a, a blind spot, right? Everyone can improve somewhere. So one of the things that we've been looking at now is like, how do we support more, you know, women comedians, like female comedians, right? And that has been one of those things where then you start to dig into, well, what's the pipeline? Like, oh, women have a different experience in comedy clubs, right? Like women are perceived differently, sometimes comically. So then maybe we have to start a little bit further down the pipeline and provide different opportunities a little bit further along. We have to be sort of more specific about making sure that, you know, this isn't skewed. And I think if everyone would come to the table accepting that there is an area that you can improve when it comes to diversity and understand that um, to say that there is bias inherent, not just in an organization, but in an individual is not an indictment of racism that we're all trying to avoid or sexism that we're all trying to avoid. Um, you know, then I think that it, we, if we open ourselves up and say we constantly have to work on this and that this will never be finished, but that we have to see measurable and marked improvements in our numbers, then I think we can see a path forward. Um, it, it must be refreshing to have this at this moment to have been diverse by design. A lot of institutions, I think, are struggling with that are not that way. 
are struggling with what are the next steps to become more that way. Yeah. And I see all sorts of mistakes being made throughout the industry because there's no way to, to there's no shortcut, mm. right? Yeah. Um, you have to have diverse networks, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you have to be able to surface black candidates, right? Yeah. right? And some organizations and industries, frankly, are, are not great at that. Given your experience, particularly with building this organization, what kind of advice do you give to the rest of the, the, the sector that needs to update so dramatically? I mean, I think that like, you know, you have to have just, there has to be some radical movement and shifts, you know, because a pipeline program isn't going to get you there if your entire board, right, is not, is comprised of people who don't look like the, the folks who you're trying to attack, attract. Putting together a mentorship or internship program does nothing if all of your C-suite, right, does not reflect the people who you're trying to attract. So while everybody keeps defaulting to this pipeline, I say start at the top, right? So when I look at it, folks, because again, they're going to be inherently incentivized and motivated to do the work. You have to empower people to hire at scale with the assumption and understanding that it's not that you're trying to do a favor for a woman, a person of color, a trans person, an LGBTQ, a differently abled person. You're not doing them a favor. You have to go into it with the assumption that any underrepresented person who you're reaching out to is that there are there are equally and more qualified people in these communities who you're simply not surfacing, right? And you have to also understand that they systemically may have been denied these opportunities. So you cannot profile them exactly the same. Like if you're looking so talk about boards, you're required to have board experience to get on the board. Well then, well, thanks, you know, but but it doesn't necessarily mean that if you've had all of the C-suite experience and you've built and scaled organizations just because you haven't publicly served on a board that you're not qualified for such. It's like, oh, well, I want someone who's set in the C-suite. Well be the first person to give that, you know, very senior leader who's managed P&Ls, who's built, you know, companies, give them the opportunity to get there. And so, you know, I would say, and, and not because there has been, while very encouraging moves, there's also been a lot of performative action, right? Putting out programs, earmarking dollars and cents, that's one thing, but it doesn't change the fabric of organizations. And so mm-hmm. if you want to change the fabric of an organization, you have to change the composition of it at the top. You have to change the people who control the fabric of that organization. As part of our commitment that we're making in this podcast, um, it's our goal to ensure that the conversation around social justice, what you alluded to earlier as a racial reckoning that we're going through, we want to keep that dialogue fresh. We want to keep it loud. Um, and utilize this platform that we have uh, uh, with Advertising Week um, to really amplify the discussion. That being said, are there responses from the industry or individual voices that you would like to, to amplify that could serve as an inspiration to our audience? I mean, I think Netflix has made some bold moves, you know, recently, um, you know, supporting, putting, you know, Bose uh, is in the C-suite, the deal that they just did with Mara Brock Akil, the, um, you know, sort of corporate and individual, um, you know, moves that they've made to support Black banks, to support Black colleges. 
Um, and again, not everyone is endowed the same way that they are, right? Not everyone has the same kind of sort of Netflix balance sheet, but the idea is what is the maximum point of impact that you could have, right? And by the way, even they, I'm sure could do more. So I think we have to figure out what is the maximum point of impact. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, think about impact, like whose lives are these changing and put programs in place that aren't just, again, performative, because there have actually been, um, you know, a, an encouraging number of C-suite appointments that I've seen, like I've seen a lot of, you know, my peers and a lot of mobility. In fact, we're about to announce a number of senior new hires at our team and a number of new appointments. And so that's encouraging, but I would also encourage everyone to think about what are those moves that create sustainable and ongoing who can you put in place that are going to continue to perpetuate that so that it's not just oh i checked the box like you know let's move on um you know i and and i and i want to make sure i had a conversation with someone and they were talking about how um you know their team and this is a a big tech company their team was so moved um, their C-suite that they decided to, you know, they talked about it amongst the leadership team and the leadership team came and um, set in on their like black at um, ERG group. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, they listened and they did a town hall and they're going to take all these actions. And, you know, I thought, you didn't see what was wrong with that. Your C-suite had to come down to get the black perspective. It meant that it wasn't inherent. It wasn't embedded in your C-suite. That's problematic. By the way, it's the same if we're talking about women. It's the same if we're talking about differently able people. And so I'm not suggesting that tomorrow anyone's going to hit a switch and all of a sudden have, you know, a team that's perfectly composed. It's not about it's it is about the numbers, but it's also about the disposition of the company and the commitment, again, to creating organizations that reflect and in many ways should lead the society in entertainment and in advertising. We have a huge responsibility because um, and I would argue at times, even above politicians, we offer more influence right on what the attitudes and the values and the ideals are of folks because we're controlling all the images, right? We're literally creating the narrative. So I think we should take that responsibility seriously. Um, That's really good advice, Ty. Thank you for that. Um, We'd be remiss while we have you not to mention that in addition to your day-to-day responsibilities (laughs) with LOL, you're also the co-founder of a company called Sugarberry, um, a lifestyle brand. Could you tell us about it? And, um, yeah, what your goals are with Sugarberry? Yeah, Sugarberry is my other baby. Um, you know, co-founded with um, actress and producer Tika Sumter of Mixed Dish and Sonic. Um, she's a, a dear friend of mine, but, um, you know, she and I both consider ourselves careerists, had kids, um, you know, in our mid-30s for the first time, became moms for the first time in our mid-30s, mid to late 30s. <laughs> and, um, and you know, she said when she was out, and this was initially her, her idea, her brainchild, she said she was in the market and looking for, when she was pregnant, looking for products and experiences and content that would ref- that reflect it, just like we were talking about, right? And, and embraced her experience as a Black mom. And the narrative around Black motherhood was all doom, gloom, and destruction. There weren't products that were highlighted that were catered to us. And it seemed that there was a joy that was being um, either denied or sort of disqualified when it came to Black motherhood. And uh, a friend of ours connected us so I could give her some business advice. And 
it was hard for me to keep on my business hat because as a consumer, it so deeply resonated with me because I was like, that was my experience. Like I I find myself mining other people's spaces, right? Um, for, for content that applies to me and my mini. So we birthed Sugarberry. We call it a, you know, Brown Mama's Guide to the Sweet Life. It's a daily love letter to Black and Brown moms. And it's really just, you know, content, community, and commerce curated for modern moms of color. Um, I will say that what prompted me not just sort of uh, personally to, to, to be attracted to the business, when I did the research and found out that, you know, Black folks are, are wielding $1.2 trillion in purchasing power. It'll be $1.5 trillion in the U.S., um, you know, in the next year. And um, control, you know, Black women and women of color actually have so much disproportionate influence on certain markets, that are specific to parenthood. Moms of color account for over 40% of all baby food purchasing. They account for nearly 50% of all sort of like, you know, bath products and lotions and sort of the baby category. It's how can we wield this much influence and not be catered to? So it was one of those double bottom lines of both sort of we're pursuing profit, but also it's a, it's a deeply sort of like purpose-filled journey that we're on as well. And I imagine Sugarberry is another outstanding candidate for being built into a diversified media company. <laughs> we look forward to, to, to seeing its future. Ty, we usually like to end on, on kind of like a prediction, right? This mm -hmm. podcast is focused on the future of television. So uh, I want you to peer forward into the future of the content and video content industry, particularly as LOL is really the architect of the future of comedy. Yeah. Right. And and tell us what you see five years from now, let's say in 2025. Sure. So I'll start with us and then I'll go broader. Right. I mean, if I'm thinking 2025 for LOL, um, you know, I want to see global, um, you know, sort of penetration and, um, you know, a much broader um, sort of array of comedians. I want, you know, you to be able to look back or, and I predict that you will look back and say like, they broke these stars and this talent on LOL. Um, you know, I also see us getting into much broader sort of sort of IP pipeline monetization, right? So more more ways to monetize, more um, sort of you know business units and business models around IP that we're developing, um, and then some really big IP franchises coming out of this that translate to experiences and um, commerce and and multi platform content um, and and playing on a distribution level at a much 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 larger scale, right? We're reaching hundreds of millions. So we're going to be, you know, reaching billions by that time. Um, and then on in the broader universe, you know, I think that just like we saw with the rush to these um, sort of skinny ass fads, right? Everyone had one and then there was this kind of falling away. Um, you'll see the winners uh, arise from the streamers. There's going to continue to be, I think, over the, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of growing over the next, you know, 18 months and trying and figuring out and acquiring. And I think we're going to go through another period of great consolidation and falling away. Um, and, and I wonder, I can't say that I predict this, but I do wonder if with all the cords cut back to our conversation about um, you know, discovery and and fragmentation and sort of like an overwhelming experience. I wonder where um, aggregation will sit, right? Mm. And if, you know, folks who are really um, sort of 
portals to all of these experiences like the Amazons and the apples of the world that they might be sitting in a really, really interesting, um, you know, footprint because, you know, it, because they actually are, are in a position to be able to provide some of that sort of like aggregation and curation again that um, I think soon will, will be sort of like, you know, looking to, to, to find, incorporate more of that. Oh, and then I think the bundling, right? The bundling of services, I think, is going to be, again, to, to that end, important. Bundling and rebundling and rebundling, it seems to be a, a repeated theme in the industry. Ty, we were so honored to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Spotless. Be sure to subscribe and come back soon for another conversation about the future of television. For more information, you can connect with us anytime at spotless at triplelift.com. <laughs>